Hi, folks, and welcome to another episode of Sean and Dave Make Music. Our guest this month, Melissa Dunphy, is a phenomenal, award-winning, nationally renowned composer and performer who also does a million other things I'm not going to try to list here. We talk about a lot of the different aspects of her professional and personal life in this episode, but I'm sure there are some things we missed, too. So I'd recommend you spend some time exploring melissadunphy.com. You can find out a lot more about her there and listen to some examples of her work. Dave and I studied composition at Westchester University at the same time as Melissa, and ever since we met, her talent, work ethic, and attitude towards music has been an inspiration to me. It's inspired me to keep making new things and to keep making things in general. Just one quick specific plug before we jump into the interview. Her podcast, The Bog House, is the insane, fascinating, and hilariously wild tale of how her and her husband, Matt, bought a magic theater in the heart of Philadelphia. So if you want to hear more of Melissa's crazy stories, make sure you check that out. It's a mix of history, true crime, archaeology, all told through a comedic lens, and I, for one, am hooked. It's so good. They're, they're on a break right now, and I hope they come back soon. Just can't wait. We actually recorded this episode from said bog house in Philadelphia, and we had so much fun. So, Melissa and Matt, thank you so much for welcoming us into your home and letting us play with your toys and artifacts. And listeners, if this episode is half as fun to listen to as it was to make, you are in for a treat. Take a seat. Hi, everybody, and welcome to Sean and Dave Make Music. I'm so excited to be here in... The bog house? In the bog house? In the Hanukkah Hollow Hill Welcome stage? Yes. The... And you have taken seats. <laughs> yes. Okay. Finally, <laughs> someone <laughs> has literally <laughs> taken a seat <laughs> in the bog house. Yeah. yeah. Someone has, has heeded my instructions. <laughs> uh, it's, I, I've been dying to get this seat, so I'm, I'm happy. <laughs> um, so, we're here with Melissa Dunphy. Uh, I, I don't even know what to how to list your credits. Me Podcaster, neither. amateur archaeologist, <laughs> composer improviser yeah uh, all kinds of other things that uh, i sometime probably don't actor, know yeah, I'm shakespearean actress back. at times right <laughs> yeah. Then, yeah yeah i'm trying to get less of that because it's landlord <laughs> yeah yeah oh landlord landed gentry you, you did I modeling at some point right i We've did got, used to do lo- modeling <laughs> yeah um and i've had a lot of really weird careers on my way to this position I was a junior junior legal secretary for a while oh. when I was 18, and then I was a wine consultant, which means I sold wine over the phone for a telemarketing like <laughs> wine club. Um, learned a lot about wine, had a really great palate, and then I worked in IT for a subdivision of GE, and then I worked in TV production. Um, I've done a lot of weird jobs. Where were? Uh, when did you move here? That's uh, something I don't know. Like, okay. sort of. I, I, I listened to um, the your episode of Puppeteers that you did the other day because yes. I wanted to. Uh, by the way, go listen to Melissa on Puppeteers. That was a good Puppet interview. Puppeteers, yeah, yeah. But uh, I, you know, I just like to know what topics to avoid that have already been out there and so, ask you about other things. So, sort of your origin story. Before you found composing, yeah. what brought you to this country, first of all? I know uh, you're from Australia. Fell in love with Matt, um, and uh, and we'll actually probably be covering this on the bog house in a couple weeks as well. But uh, we met over a mutual love of Nine Inch Nails, the band. Yep. Uh, <laughs> he has a Nine Inch Nails website, and it was my favorite website. <laughs> and uh, we, I came to America on a vacation when I was 22, Um And I thought, well, I should meet up with this guy I've been chatting with online for the longest time. And this was in 2002. So in 2002, (laughs) meeting someone on the internet was like, 
oh boy, that's weird. Oh yeah, there was He's, a stigma for sure. Yeah, and going to a another yeah, country for me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, Melissa's <laughs> gonna go meet up with a serial killer who's you know catfishing her and is probably not anything like he looks like online and is you know definitely a serial killer though because America is just full of serial killers. Um, and well, that was probably part of the draw too, right? Oh sure, like who doesn't want to meet a serial killer from America online? Uh, but I met him and he was even nicer than he was in the chat and i we had this amazing chemistry and we ended up road tripping down to new orleans and back cool and new orleans did something to us and by the time the trip was over we were like oh no we're in love <laughs> can i swear on this podcast oh, yeah. oh, oh yeah. shit we're in love <laughs> And um, what do we do? And so we did the long distance thing for a while. And then we were like, we just have to get married. It's the only way. It's the <laughs> only way. We have to just get married. So in 2003, I came to America. At this point, I had, like, I was always a musician. And I, where did you get your start? On viola? Uh, or on, cello? Well, actually or on piano. piano, which you would not believe because I am the world's worst pianist. Like... My students laugh at me because my piano skills are so poor. Uh, when I was a little girl, um, like four or five, my mother, my Chinese mother, very typical Chinese tiger mom, took me to piano lessons because she had heard it makes you better at math. And <laughs> I was pretty good at piano. I learned with the Yamaha Piano School, which is distinct mm. from Suzuki. And the Yamaha method of teaching, I think, actually really contributed to me being a composer and um, improviser. There was a lot of stuff that I think about it now, and I'm like, this is a good way to teach little kids. They would play the first half of a, of a melody, of a sentence, and you had to finish it. Oh, cool. So, and so yep. there would be a classroom of kids, and the teacher would start off with a really simple melody that would end on the dominant, and then it would get passed around to you, and you would play it, and you had to end up on the tonic. Very cool. Uh, yeah, and I'm kind of like, that's a really awesome way to teach kids the language yeah. of music. Absolutely. Um, and we had the same kind of thing, but with chords, you know, as you got sort of mm -hmm. more progressed. Um, but I was never a great pianist. When I was seven, uh, I was at a private all-girls school, a scholarship kid, and they had us play uh, a stringed instrument in fourth grade. So I started violin for that. Was never also the greatest violinist in the world because I didn't practice. I was one of those horror students who would practice 15 minutes before my lesson and kind of skate. And it's like, you could be better, mm -hmm. but... Yep. It's not in my nature to practice that hard. Yeah. <laughs> then when I was 14, I had an epiphany one day when I was at a math contest. I think music actually did make me better at math. So, um, <laughs> I'm glad it worked for one I of know, us. I know, I <laughs> know. I, I was at this math Olympiad contest and I was on a break. And I, was, I remember this so clearly. I was sitting under a tree and it was like an epiphany from the heavens. I can't explain it. A voice inside my brain went switch to viola. Like it was mm. that clear. And I went to my math Olympiad team and was like, I just got this amazing idea. I'm going to switch to viola. And they were like, Melissa, we don't care. Why do you this? <laughs> I feel like most schools would be thrilled to have a, a bonus viola player. Well, these were like math kids and oh, the math right. teacher. Okay. They, they were like, no why are you thinking about this? 
you're supposed to be solving these algebra gotcha. problems. And I'm like, no, 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 but I can't wait to get back to school. I'm going to go straight to my music <laughs> teacher and switch to viola. And they're like, shut up. And that's all I could talk about for the rest of the day. I get back to school. I run to my, my teacher. And she was primarily a violist, actually, but she taught violin as well. Mm-hmm. So I said the words, I'm switching to viola. And she, like, you know, near burst into tears with happiness. Yeah. She was so <laughs> delighted, right? So uh, I actually started practicing when I switched to viola. Cool. Um, and sometimes I think that that's a thing. Like, if you switch instrument, the the challenge of learning a new skill and a new instrument can make you more diligent i agree and i think it's uh, especially fun to learn a second instrument that's very related to your first one because so much of the mechanics are already there right and you can work on the areas that you need to and the other foundation is already there yeah and uh, similar with woodwinds too yeah 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 of course of course because so many of them have related fingering systems Mm -hmm. yeah but it's like something about the new timbre and the novelty of it i suddenly started practicing for like two three hours a day what (laughs) (laughs) so i reached my peak at 16 on viola i was a really good violist when i was 16 Yeah, and then and I kept playing. I played in um, a couple youth orchestras. I toured to the west coast of the USA, and I toured to Japan and Korea with some youth orchestras. I um, uh, just I fell out of love with classical music for a while. I got really pissed off that um, I played a recital and I played the Ernest Bloch meditation, and I missed the climax. It's like this jump into I don't know, like tenth position or something, mm-hmm. and I missed it. it flubbed the note completely and walked off stage and burst into tears yeah you know yeah and then you were that's trauma. the once bitten yeah. twice shy it's right. gonna take forever then, to get back and the, but then i thought about it and i started getting like really mad at the culture of classical music that i fucked up one note <laughs> and it was universally considered a failure like mm-hmm. oh no you fucked up that one note and i kind of had this um, th- I was mad. I was angry. I, I thought to myself, this isn't what music is supposed to be about. And that's the point at which I said, okay, I'm going to stop practicing for three hours a day on technical chops and explore other options. And so I joined a couple bands. I joined a folk band. I did street musician stuff for a while. I, um, you know, started playing in insane goth electric, you know, electro punk bands and just just exploring other options and the freedom of you fuck up a note on stage you laugh and the audience loves you Mm -hmm. for being human is god sometimes i wish i could take classical music by the collar and just (laughs) shake it and be like stop and the idea that there's only one perfect interpretation that yes. it doesn't exist but we're all like fighting in any piece it's like oh it's got to be that one perfect yeah, yeah. it's crazy Fuck it's that. a little bit nuts <laughs> yeah. and it's a little bit like nobody in the audience cares nobody yep. is sitting there going like oh shit that was a bit pitchy or whatever you know what i mean <laughs> we're all in this together right like, it's it's an experience that right. right and it's about the emotions and about the shape of it and the communication and the narrative and those are the things that are most important First up today, we've got a little tune we're going to call Underground. We came up with the chord progression together, which I played on the ukulele. Melissa sang and played toy piano. And Dave played a stylophone beatbox, handheld synthesizer and drum machine, which is a little metal circular device with numbers on it that you tap with a stylus to generate the tone.
digging around It's not so hard To get a little dirty Get a little side I was playing in bands um I came to America I was doing a lot of acting in Shakespeare companies and uh and but still playing music on the side oftentimes because I was an actor the company would learn I was a musician and have me play music in shows as well <laughs> so I was in a production of A Midsummer Night's Dream at the Harrisburg Shakespeare Festival and the music director dropped out of the show with no music written because he was going through some personal stuff and the director came to me and said will you write some music for the show I had not written anything since really high school uh, and I was 24 at this point and I said okay sure uh, let me try it and so I, I, I was working at a PBS NPR station at the oh, time cool. as well during the day. So I would spend my day working at WITF in Harrisburg, then my evening rehearsing with the Harrisburg Shakespeare Festival, and then I'd come home and compose till like two o'clock in the morning, and then get up at eight and do it all over again. And one of those two o'clock in the morning sessions, I had another epiphany, like the viola epiphany, where something in my brain went, oh fuck, this is it. This is what you want to do. Um, this is it. Quit everything else. This You want to be a composer. This is tickling all the left brain, right brain things. Mm -hmm. You don't have to practice that hard because you don't really have to play. You just have to write the notes on the page. It's kind of like solving a puzzle, but it's also like creating a work of art at yeah. the same time. And that's really interesting to me. Um, so, yeah. So I, you know, I, I tell people I went to Google and I typed in how to be a composer. <laughs> and Google was like, go to grad school. And I was like, I don't have an undergrad yet. <laughs> what do I do? Uh, and I went researching schools in the area and people were like, oh, you could go to this school. It costs $50,000 a year. Um, or you could go to Penn State and live in the middle of nowhere surrounded by people who are obsessed with football. Or you can go to Westchester University, yeah. super reasonably priced. And the faculty, you know, they have a robust composition program and uh, the faculty, a lot of them got their PhDs at the University of Pennsylvania, yep. which I thought was this, I was like, I think that's the school I want to go to for grad school because I'd love to live in Philly. Yeah. Uh, and they offer a free ride and stipend for all of their PhD <laughs> students. It's like a free ride and a $25,000 a year stipend. Uh, yep. and minimal Beautiful. teaching yeah <laughs> so nice. i was like that's the grad school i want here's the undergrad uh place i'm gonna go to first and 
it all worked out really cool. well. And I met you two there. <laughs> uh, yeah, I think it's so interesting that you settled on classical music because you, you enjoy so many different things right. and have done so many different things. And, and I came back. Yeah, and, and I feel like succeeded at, at, or could succeed at a million different things that you want to do. It's hard to decide sometimes. But some, It feels like, it felt like home a little bit. But also with the experience of those other things that I could avoid some of the pitfalls of classical music. Totally, you've got so much knowledge you can draw on. Right. Yeah. And, and I, the... There are really, at this point in classical music, no rules right. to break. Yes, it's, <laughs> you know. a lot, lo it's a lot freer than it was in like the mid to late 20th century. Um, and a lot of things are being broken down. A lot of the sexism and the racism and the weird, you know, cloistered ivory tower shit is being broken down. And that's a really good thing. Totally. Yeah. Um, but it's like it's interesting. So yeah, when I <laughs> tell, when um, when I enrolled at Westchester, they said you have to declare a major instrument. Or when I applied at Westchester, and I was like, oh no, do I have to go back to viola? <laughs> and at that point, I kind of went, fuck it. I think I'm going to take up a new instrument again. And that's why you met me as a cellist. <laughs> So that was, uh, yeah, you just starting on it then? Yeah, yeah. I played it for six <laughs> awesome. months and then I auditioned <laughs> and they let me in, which is kind of hilarious. Um, and I was I was always a shitty cellist. I think um, you just need to demonstrate to them enough that like you, you can, can do. Yeah, you yeah. can get by on one thing and then you're allowed to compose. So, <laughs> right. do, do you have potential that you could yeah. work and it could be serviceable? Yeah, right. Yeah. yeah. Can, will you look like serviceable in the orchestra will you look yeah. like you could be playing the correct notes maybe <laughs> <laughs> is your bow moving in the correct direction <laughs> then sure go in the orchestra um so they let me into the orchestra but after i after i finished my degree at westchester i came back to viola and again it was like coming home mm. but i felt like a better violist i'm sure for having wandered and that's like something that i feel like classical music especially we're so youth obsessed and we're so yeah. get everything done as fast as possible. Like be a child prodigy and go to Curtis when you're like nine and get your bachelor's degree by the time you're 15. And, and if not too late. And if not too late, right. right. Oh no, you're 25. You're over the hill. You haven't <laughs> achieved anything. You know, you're yep. done. And that's bullshit on so many levels, but even on just on an artistic level, you grow so much as a human being and going and taking time off or going and living your life and doing other things will make you a better musician. I'm really convinced of that. Oh, yeah. I feel terrible for people who just go like high school, music school, you know what I mean? And never have time to live because they're practicing for five, six, seven hours a day and then they're becoming a concert pianist or going and living the orchestra life and... You know totally. what I mean? Yeah, that's a, a friend of mine from Cincinnati. Um, this guy, Dave McDonnell. Um, mm -hmm. When he was, uh, I, I knew him. He was doing his PhD there at the time, and um, when he was kind of presenting, you know, the masterclass session, I'm like, "Here's the history of my work," and he's got the PowerPoint going. And at one point, he just was like, "And then after I finished my master's program." And then he brought up this thing and it just said, like, the years of wandering or something like that. Yeah. It's like, this is a decade where I just played a lot of jazz and I yes. had bands and I journeyed. It's like, yes. then I came back around. For <laughs> sure. Oh, that's so funny because that's what I call the years between when. Um, so when I straight out of high school, I went to med school because uh, I thought I wanted to be. Well, because my mom thought I wanted to be a doctor. <laughs> and, uh, and I quit after nine months. And then that time, like 
then I did the legal secretary and and I call that also my wandering in the wilderness period (laughs) and that was eight years so that's really analogous and then came back to music and was like I don't regret that at all you know despite the fact that by the time I enrolled at Westchester when I was 26 I uh, had already aged out of the like BMI Young Composers contest with Tazakov oh, yeah, at 24. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm like, I'm just starting and I'm already old. Yep. Great. Thanks. <laughs> thanks for that chip on my shoulder. But despite that, I'm like, I can put together a contract. I can sell myself on the phone. And off the phone, I can, you know, uh, put together my computer setup. I'm good at fixing things. I have all of these other things that I can do. And that... That you don't need to hire people for. Yes. And it's super helped me out in my career. I'm sure. So I don't regret it at all. Our next track is very much the opposite of the last one. This is an experimental free improvisation with me on flute, Melissa on her home-built theremin, and Dave on some found object percussion and a typewriter.
So I want to talk a little bit about, or, or hear a little bit about your compositional process and uh, kind of a little, maybe a little bit about the commission process. You told yeah. us a little bit about that off mic and, and more, more so just, uh, I'm sure there are a million ideas floating around in your head that could all become pieces. Mm-hmm. How do you choose one if, if you're not working on a so, uh, uh, commission? Like a, or right. Um, like well, it's, it's changed over time. So the freest time that you have as a composer is in school. Uh, in school, it's mm-hmm. all up to you, really, unless you have a real hard-ass teacher that definitely wants you to compose a trombone concerto or something, <laughs> which has happened to some people. But for whatever reason, maybe because I was slightly older than the typical undergrad or even graduate student, uh, I was never pressured to write anything I didn't want to write in school. So, I pretty much had that same experience. Yeah, West, at, or, at Westchester. Yeah, yeah, at West, totally. yeah. I, I had a pretty free reign of what I wanted to write. Right. Yeah, Westchester was very good like that. I would just show up to my lessons and be like, I'm writing a cantata. And (laughs) they'd they'd say, cool. Okay, cool. Yeah, which I super appreciate. Some students might need more guidance than others, but I was like, these are the things I want to write, and I would just write them. Um, And so that was kind of... I knew when I wanted to write something because I would get really emotional about something extra musical and Mm. then I would want to express that musically I don't think that's the one true way of composition you know (laughs) in in any respect you know but that for me um composition is such a it's such an intensive process that you need to have some kind of inspiration that carries you through that process which can sometimes go on for months at a time so if it's not something that really excites you from get i think it would be very difficult to retain that level of commitment and to to do this kind of lonely activity Mm -hmm. sitting in front of a computer you know stewing in your own disgusting sweat usually (laughs) and using your brain so hard yes (laughs) Yes. yeah like really i call it there's a composition sweat that i get that smells extra bad (laughs) like (laughs) i don't know what it is i don't know if it's like 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 impurities in your brain like being sweated out of your pores that's so from all interesting of this... any neuroscientist listening let us know if you have insight right, i know i'm like there's something that goes on when i'm when i'm in front of my computer composing i don't even you know it's not that i don't shower sometimes i don't when i'm really in the zone but you know even before that i'm like i stink what the hell it's, really funny. it's weird <laughs> the metabolism of 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 composing is strange um so it's it can be this um it's very intense it's an intense process and you have to sacrifice stuff in order to do it you have to sacrifice to some level your social life Mm -hmm. you have to sacrifice you know having a nice clean house sometimes you (laughs) sacrifice eating because you you've got to get something out by a deadline um so yeah so i get inspired by extra musical things um then when i graduated school you know, um, I when I was finishing my PhD, I had all these other crazy things going on with regard to buying a magic theater from a pedophile and doing archaeology. Um, so I kind of thought, oh, I'll get my PhD and I won't go out looking for commissions. I'll take a little break 
and I'll continue doing my fun side project with the theater. But the weirdest thing happened, and I don't know if this is true for every composer, but it was true for me. I had been writing some choral music while I was getting my PhD and I had started to get a name for myself as a choral composer. Mm-hmm. And I always tell young composers, if you want a, an easy way to sort of get commissions, start writing choral music because choral music is self-propagating. You write a choir piece, you get a good choir to sing it. In the good choirs, every member of that choir has another choir that they sing with. And if they like your piece, they will take your piece to the other choirs. Um, And it's like you don't have to market yourself. That's awesome. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Right? And I'm kind of like, it was so... um, like eye-opening when this happened in the choral world because you, I cannot imagine that happening in the orchestral world. Not at all. N- yeah. I've been well, an orchestral or- musician. Yeah, they usually don't have much of a say at all. You don't, right, yeah. right. <laughs> right. Choral, choirs are much more democratic. So yeah. it's not like, you know, me sitting fifth desk violas or whatever can be like, oh, wow, that's a really great piece. I'm going to take it to my other conductor friend and tell them yeah. to... That happens so rarely. And orchestral musicians seem to be much less invested in the repertoire. Yeah, yeah. You know, it's mm-hmm. like it just comes down from on high. The you know, totalitarian dictator conductor says, you're playing Prokofiev this season. And I feel like a lot of their variety only comes from the fact that they're doing multiple gigs. Like they'll be like with this orchestra, we're doing traditional rep. This one is the pop stuff. This one is the chamber ensemble. For sure. For sure. It's like a very different world. Also choir pieces tend to be shorter Mm. and they play, sorry, they sing a lot more of them on a concert. So choir directors are always looking for new rep. Yeah. Anyway, This is all to say, I finished my PhD and I thought, great, I'll take a little break. And instead, it was like the second I walked across that stage and got my paper in my hand, the calls, the commission calls started coming in. I'm very lucky. This was like an incredible... Yeah, I was going to say, no, that doesn't happen to everyone. I will not. (laughs) I I can't complain about this. I know it sounds like I'm complaining. I'm I'm aware of how lucky I am, but it was like, yeah, maybe maybe the message here is when you want things to slow down they'll speed up and probably when you want things to speed up they'll slow down and you, this is freelance be thankful for your wandering period right. i hope yeah. you enjoyed it because yeah. right? it doesn't happen yeah. anymore yeah <laughs> it's kind of like when you work in retail and i've worked in retail i mean who hasn't worked in retail in the arts right where um it's always a huge rush of people and then nothing yep right and mm-hmm. everyone's experienced that and it's like a weird brain connection thing that human beings have to each other that we we for some reason we we uh, all go to the restaurant at the same time and then we all leave at the same time and the poor waitress or waiter or whatever is like oh my god that was i'm i'm yeah. insane now yeah. I, I i've lost my mind thank you <laughs> now uh, i'm gonna wrap silverware for right <laughs> three hours right exactly yeah. exactly <laughs> wrapping yeah. silverware for three hours because nobody is coming <laughs> um but uh yeah so what usually happens with the commission is an organization or a choir contacts me and uh, one of two things happens. Either they say, we have a text that we'd love you to set or we have a theme that we want you to set or they'll say, we don't know what we want to do. We just want a piece from you. We want a new piece. Sometimes they'll say, here is the concert that we want to premiere your new piece on. We have chosen these other pieces. Yeah. Can you write a piece of music that fits into this program in some way or has a dialogue with the other pieces on the program or something. Um, 
or they'll just give me free reign. What say, do you prefer? Would you like to have some sort of guidance or is it nice to have the free reign? I like all of it. I know that's really, I'm, I'm being indecisive there. It's but a it's, true for answer. It's, no, it's fine. Yeah. Right, because they're very different things. Um, sometimes it's fun when a choir gives me a text and I'm like, are you kidding me? I never would have chosen this text by myself. <laughs> But then that becomes like a challenge. Yeah, it pushes you out of your yeah. comfort zone. Yeah, you're like, can yeah, I take fun. this text that I never would have chosen and turn it into a Melissa Dunphy piece of music? You know, yeah, okay, that's fun. Um, sometimes when, yeah, when a choir gives me complete free range. So I have a, uh, like a Google Doc where if I get an idea in the middle of the night or whatever for a piece of music, I'll throw it into the Google Doc and it's just, it's, it's not curated at all. There are some utterly shithouse ideas on that doc you know shout out to my murder mystery opera that i (laughs) (laughs) i I thought i'd put in there one time (laughs) how fun a murder mystery opera melissa you're never gonna write that okay (laughs) unless someone wants to commission me forty thousand dollars i'll write you a murder mystery opera um or pretty much any other opera (laughs) yeah i mean sure yeah i'll do 45 uh, yeah if you pick the subject it's 45 (laughs) if it's murder mystery it's 40 (laughs) So I, I can draw from that uh, from that list of things because copyright is the way that it is. Um, I I often troll like public domain um, websites mm-hmm. for new poets that I didn't know about before, poets who've been forgotten mm-hmm. by history, often yeah. because they're women or they're writing mm-hmm. about low subjects or whatever. And let's see if I can I can find those, and then I'll I'll list those names and those poems in there and cool. pull them out and then it's just a matter of um yeah me in my pajamas in front of my computer sweating it out sweating it out, it out and stinking really but my poor husband poor matt <laughs> my god it must reek when he comes home from me composing all day i also go out i have back deck which is right next to my composition area and uh it's really loud out there because of the highway so if i go out there i can like sing it out oh yeah so (laughs) usually when i write stuff um i improvise vocally first even if it's instrumental Mm -hmm. so i'll just walk around in a circle on my deck and sing um yeah and find it yeah Yeah. and find it and if you my rule is if you sing it and then you forget it right away it must have been kind of crap (laughs) so but if you sing it and you remember it you it's know. a reassuring thing to tell yourself it works. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> to let go of all those ideas yeah. that have that floated away. Yeah, because yeah. yeah. that happens, right? Yourself there, yeah. You've had that experience, oh, I'm yeah. sure. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah, you're like, wow, that was a great melody. Yeah, we talked about this uh, when we had Robert Dick on the podcast. Okay. And he was saying like, yeah, I used to think like, if you think of something and you don't write it down, if it's good enough, it'll come back. But, but... Not always. Not always. I've realized <laughs> that it's better. It's safer to write it down right yeah. away. Yeah, I have he, done... He was like song title, like piece sure. titles for this. Oh, yeah, sure. Kind of a different thing. Sure. I, I've had one like hilarious instance in the car when I was writing music for um, the Cherry Orchard at People's Light out in the suburbs, the theater. Um, I got the... I, I had been agonizing over like what's the main theme gonna be what is it gonna be and i was driving to the theater and it came to me in the car sometimes it really is like that right Mm -hmm. it's so you understand why people invented you know muses and demigods that give you this (laughs) shit because i don't know where it comes from half the time but i'm driving down the street and i'm like there it is i hear it i hear it and so i'm like Uh. you know trying to navigate ways 
you know, at the same time as turn on my recorder while I'm driving and then I'm singing into the recorder, like, here it goes, okay. Uh, I'm, I'm like singing the line. Dun, 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 dun. Oh, shit, it's traffic light. Okay, <laughs> okay, start again. Dun, 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 and then, you know, get to the theater and it's still there. And it's just so fun to like, that's when it sparks and then you have to find the way to get it to other people and <laughs> yeah. translate it into a written language. Yeah. And yeah. That's, yeah. That's, that part's that's fun. The that's fun the journey. puzzle. That's yeah. the puzzle solving part. Right. Which, uh, which tickles me. Here's another free improvisation we did that's a decidedly different character. Gritty, chaotic, driving rock with Melissa on viola, me on flute, and Dave back on the old stylophone beatbox, this time on a different setting. <laughs> Gradually, as I do more composition, that I have to take breaks or I burn out. Mm. Um, Actually, I was, that, that kind of reminds me. One of the things I wanted to ask is your writing process. Mm-hmm. Um, 
it could be one of these three or totally different, but do you tend to do like marathon sessions a couple times a week or like you're like set at these hours most mornings or days? Oh, no. Or is it like spare like a half hour here, 20 minutes there? Oh, God, like, no, it's marathon. Marathon, it's all, yeah. it's all a bust and <laughs> it's probably not the healthiest thing in the world. I, I was at, I, when I was in therapy, I tried so hard to work with my therapist to develop like a healthy habit where I'm working every day and then I put it down and I just can't. I think sometimes yeah. it just doesn't work that way. Like, uh, if, if I know like I shit. have a huge chunk of time, I can settle in and and work on something. Right. But if I have two hours, it, I feel like I can't get anything done or can't get into that space. Yeah. I don't know. Nothing yeah. comes out. And then when you force something out, it mm, will yeah. sound like shit. Yep. I can't explain it. And I can't. I wish there was some way that I could do the you know because I've, I've heard of composers who work from nine to five and then put it down and have a life but it's <laughs> for me it's like okay i have a thing due on this date and i will percolate ideas here's here's mm -hmm. as as good as i've gotten it this is as good as i've gotten it um usually i'll get a text you know if i'm writing a, a vocal piece and I'll pull out the text and I'll read it. And if I get an idea for a snippet of something, I'll shove it in Sibelius. But I won't actually do the work of creating it in a real form until mm -hmm. minimum, like a, a maximum of like two weeks before the due date. <laughs> you just, yeah, the crunch time when the you have to make time. the real yeah. hard decisions. Yeah, of it. and yeah. quite often it won't come together until like three days before the due date and then i just don't sleep for three days yeah <laughs> I, was, I don't know if you've had this experience I, i'm very similar in that like the deadline inevitably will become like there's that crunch time period yeah. where you're like it was fuzzy and lovely and now i have to make hard decisions but then i beat myself over the head later on where i'm like you know what? That piece would have been so much better if yes. only. If like, only you'd, you'd which like... is really like, come on, no, it, like it was what it was going yes. to be. But... Because sometimes I have tried. To, I really have tried, and often and there's no. Some of my best pieces have flown out of me in yeah. like a day and a half, and you're just like, it's perfect, it's great, and then you agonize over something for weeks and weeks, and it's garbage. It yep. just mm -hmm. doesn't come together, and. It's such a mystery. It really is such a mystery. If the person who figures out how to really properly hack that part of their brain mm -hmm. to do it consistently or to, you know, to not have that crunch would be a multimillionaire. I don't know. Uh, there have been so many times for me where I'm very much in the same, like, uh, just a marathon kind mm -hmm. of thing. So it'll be like, oh. I don't have anything to do until 3 o'clock today. I have to leave by 2.30. This is great. I'm just going to sit yes. down. It's 10 a.m. And then, like, you blink. It's like, holy fuck. It, yeah. It's 2.25. I haven't eaten. I haven't showered. Eating in the yeah, shower. Exactly. Like, brushing your teeth <laughs> Running out eat. the door. <laughs> <laughs> so what happened? Like, there's so many times with, yeah. with Angie, if there's a night where I'm not teaching, where she'll come in and she'll be like, Dave, dinner's going to be ready in about, like, 20 minutes, just so you know. I'm like, okay, cool. And then I'm like, just one more thing and then i'm like all right all right i'm gonna be responsible and put it down now and i step out into the living room and she's already been done uh, <laughs> eating like and i'm just like oh. uh, i have <laughs> to wonder if it's something with the creative brain like why because i've heard this same story from so many composers yeah. um you just I, I i don't know you know it's different with a large scale work that's the only time when uh, but he, i i said you have to sort of carpet Right. Yeah. You cannot yeah. write an opera in three days unless you're who used to do that. 
I forget. Was it Donizetti? Uh, I, I forget one of the one of the Belcanto Italian composers wrote an opera in like three days or something, and someone told me that story, and I was like, "Fuck you! Do not tell me this story because then I will start thinking that yeah. I can write an opera in three days, and I won't write my opera steadily over time. I'm pretty sure it's going to take longer than that." Um, yeah, and it's it's what I tend to do now is. I do that marathon and then I deliberately give myself a break Mm -hmm. because I've made the mistake now in this part of my career where I've done cascading deadlines. I'm like, well, you know, if it takes me like five days to write a piece, I can just have like write that piece this week and this piece this week. And, you know, and I burn out. I really Mm -hmm. do. I get crazier and crazier as (laughs) deadlines cascade. And by the time I'm at the last deadline, I'm like, I've made a terrible mistake. I should have become an accountant. This is dumb fucking career. And everything I write sucks. And fuck you. And fuck you too. And I would like to drop out of this and do literally anything else with my life. Yep. <laughs> How often does that happen? Um, a couple times. Okay. You know, it's cr- yes, it crosses my mind. Yeah. And then I think about it. And I'm like, Melissa, could you really work for someone else at this point? no i don't think so i've tried that i'm not that good at it um and i think about what i would miss i mean composition is not for everyone yeah i think uh i think this is a good segue into talking a little bit about the theater yeah and uh we a lot of times we like to ask people about like their dream project of what they're doing this (laughs) seems to be it it for you (laughs) um but i want to hear a little bit about how you envision it functioning Mm -hmm. after it gets up and running what are some acts that you're really interested in bringing in yeah i um so i originally thought about the theater really as it's it's a part of my career as well it's a space that is that i can use to present my own work but also to present and curate the work of all of these amazing artists that we all hang out with and you know um and because it's a small space so the theater eventually the hannah callow hill stage will be a small sort of uh, storefront uh, 50 to 70 seat theater and it's a perfect size for recitals for solo recitals it's a great size for experimental work and this is what's really exciting to me is that because it's so small you don't have to worry about pleasing everyone you can if, if it were a 300 seat house there would be pressure to sell 300 tickets mm-hmm. it's a 50 to 70 seat house you can sell 50 tickets pretty easily and then you play to a packed house yeah so it feels good as the, from the performer's perspective and it's great for stuff that you um that wouldn't necessarily be accepted in a mainstream large uh concert hall or whatever mm-hmm. so i really want it to be multidisciplinary small theater shows uh lectures even um you know i could even see sort of a stand-up comedy thing happening there every now and again on the music side as i said it would be great for recitals it would be great for chamber music um it would be great for very small scale operas yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like really small scale yeah. stuff that you could put together monodramas and things mm-hmm. like that um I also have a big foot in the puppetry world, so it's a great size for puppetry because not all puppetry, but a lot of puppetry is smaller than life. 
so an intimate theater is really the perfect venue mm-hmm. for stuff like marionettes or tabletop puppetry or things like that uh and then also you know movement dance if you can constrain it into yeah. a small space 15 <laughs> by 15 we could totally do that uh i really want it to be as wide a variety of things as possible like one of the other things is um ab- at the top of the proscenium there's a steel beam and it's it's weight bearing it can uh bear weight safely so my circus arts friends mm. have, oh, sweet. yes yeah. have been Philly like has a lot of them <laughs> we have a ton there mm-hmm. are so many circus companies in this town it's really bizarre like acrobatic companies and all of my circus arts friends are like oh we can put a clamp on that steel beam and do aerial and trapeze and uh Very you know, cool. yeah and i'm like oh that would be amazing you would like swing out and ah uh, it would be so cool so um this is kind of what I'm uh, what I'm thinking, and my idea is yes, there will be some Melissa Dunphy presents my own work, whatever in the theater, but a lot of it is going to be what cool things would I love to have in this space? Um, let's curate it. Let's you know make deals with people. The Airbnb means I can bring people in from out of town. Mm, you can yeah. do a residency, and I know this is too much. And I want to start a school. Mm. a composition school um, where I teach people music what I think is uh, a better way than Western classical music currently that teaches students. Like the, the path uh, <laughs> rather than tenure track right? <laughs> at a university. Yeah. It seems I'm, like the path. Well, like yeah. theater owner impresario. Like right. you've, got, you, right. you've got your own like yeah. yeah institution at that point. But That's, I have yeah. real thoughts about... Um, and I mean, you, so you two are amazing composers as well and improvisers, but this is not usually the path for people who study classical music. Like yeah. you said, it's like you get to study the one true interpretation of a piece by some guy who's been dead for 200 years. Like mm-hmm. that is... And if that's what you want to do, it's hard to get there. Mm-hmm. Like one of those yeah. jobs, you have to really want it. And, yeah. And like... And a lot of people go into that work and find out that it's not as fulfilling as they thought it would be like once you get used to playing a thing and being applauded once that loses its sheen (laughs) it's like well what am i really doing what's the payoff Mm -hmm. if it's not that right yeah um and to me well the rant that i give and i've given this rant a lot is music is a language Imagine if you studied French, but all you did was memorize Proust and stand up on a stage and recite Proust. And if you fucked up a vowel, everyone in the yeah, audience yeah. was like, oh, shit, they fucked up a vowel. <laughs> and then you walked off stage and like you said, now I can speak French. No, you can't. You can't speak French. Can you say your own thoughts in French? Can you say, can you express yourself in French? Can you write a short story in French? No, you can't. You can't speak French. You, can, you don't know French. Mm-hmm. And yet... We teach kids that this is how to learn the language of music. Study some long dead yeah. thing, memorize it, get up on stage, don't fuck up a vowel. And the uh, smallest space between two notes is a half step. <laughs> Nothing else. <laughs> right, right, right. Yes. <laughs> there are no other notes. Right. Just like on a piano. <laughs> the piano is the only correct tuning. Also, you know, it's the only way to play. If you're not in tune with the piano, yeah. you're out of tune. <laughs> And then, but yeah, like, how many classical musicians do you know who can't improvise to save themselves, you know? Couldn't. Mm -hmm. Yeah. (laughs) And it's not their fault. I'm not 
shitting on them as like yeah. you're a bad musician you're not music pedagogy has failed you western classical music pedagogy has failed you mm-hmm. because yeah. you don't know how to say a paragraph of your own thoughts well that's exciting to me i'm really well, glad that you're you've got that in your, yeah. in your mind to do for the future this is what i want to do yeah i want to just rip it all apart This next one is the first piece that we played together at our session. We decided to start things off in the nice peaceful key of C major, and it features Melissa on viola, me on flute, and Dave on found object percussion, most of which was pulled out of the ground this time. Lots of sherds and bottle sounds in this one.
one of the questions that I had written down to ask you was, have you ever thought about forming your own cult? <laughs> and and you're you're kind of getting there a little bit yeah, with this. So so just the like musical. basically make oh it God. like a musical. Yeah, yeah, fun. yeah. Oh for sure. I'll start with children. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Get the yeah. get the yeah. little children in, feed them lots of sugar and no protein. And it, uh, the Dunphy method instead yeah. of Kodai. Yeah. Right? Yeah. <laughs> Kodai. Here, eat the sugar children. No no protein for you. Oh my God. And I know. In the composition sweat lodge. <laughs> composition ew, ew. <laughs> That's the way you go to be punished. <laughs> I feel like I feel like I know way too much about um you know cuz I just I love reading about cults. So it's I, one of the most fascinating subjects to me too. It really is. Do you've listened to Zealot? No way. Oh wait. There's a podcast called Zealot. It's, all about, it's about all about cults. Yeah, I listened to the Heaven's Gate podcast. Um, okay. It's like a short run podcast. I haven't listened and to that one, but I've heard. I know yeah, the story. Yeah, you should read it. It took me a little moment to realize the two leaders of the cult were like a, a woman and a man, and they called themselves T and Doe. <laughs> Oh, God. <laughs> and I, it didn't like it took me a second or two of them saying that before i was like sulfate <laughs> they're calling themselves leading tone and tonic so that's amazing okay but yeah i yeah and scientology and yeah it's um, so fascinating yeah, yeah i and so but i feel like because i've read so much about cults i'd actually be pretty good at starting one because i know all the the tricks. The tricks yeah. too. The first, the first rule of starting a cult, though, is you can't tell people that you're starting a cult. You've got to maybe. Although I wonder. At this point, <laughs> it, I think you could come right out and come say, right out and just "Join my cult." Here's what we're about, uh, Dave. I think you're like really optimistic about the human race. Because, I know. I know. Like, I'm I could ignoring stand in, the state what of the world. I could, right I could shoot someone in the middle of Fifth, Fifth Avenue, Avenue and nobody yeah. would, and I could still. Yep. Like he was very brazen about what he could or get just, away with, or just Rudy Giuliani a couple days ago. This is going to now be dating this episode, of right, course, but, but yeah, that's okay. Yeah, yeah there's I, just constant. Yeah, like yeah. they're admitting it. Yeah, oh, you wholeheartedly. Can ad- you can admit all and, kinds of yeah. nefarious things, and people will just go, "Oh, they don't mean it," or yeah. "They're kidding." If they're so entertaining, you just have to be entertaining. Are you not entertained? <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> like, why so serious? <laughs> <laughs> this is now the movie quotes yes. podcast. <laughs> movie quotes <laughs> portion we've entered. Not yeah. the cult podcast. Yeah, I'm just looking at my list here trying to see if there's anything else that I missed that uh, oh, I've I got wanted to add. One yeah. we're, we're just about out of time. Okay. Um, so this kind of plays off of your visions of what you wanted to do with the theater of different types of acts to bring in. Uh-huh. So you're pretty clued into the Philadelphia scene. So... Um, it would be good to ask for general for our listeners and everything. What are like a few things coming up that they could be your own projects or just other people that you know of, but mm-hmm. what's stuff happening this summer that people should not miss out on? Like what's oh. the stuff that people in the know know is coming up? Okay. Well, obviously the Fringe Festival comes up in Philadelphia every September yep. and it's overwhelming. There, it, You know, I was, I did the Gonzalez Cantata in the Fringe Festival in 2009, mm-hmm. I think it was, and it has gotten so much bigger even since then. It's impossible now to see all of the good shows mm. in the Fringe because you just yeah. don't have enough <laughs> slots on your dance card to see that many shows. Uh, so I always try to make it to Fringe, but what usually ends up happening is that I get into sh- Fringe shows, I get involved in a Fringe show, and then you can't see anything else. <laughs> 
Um, there's also, uh, so Opera Philly, I've been sort of trying, getting more involved with Opera Philly. Um, mm -hmm. They're one of the only opera companies in the country that's doing really innovative mm. new ideas, which I super appreciate. Well, that's convenient that it's your city. I yeah. know, right? <laughs> it's so exciting to me that to live in a town with an opera company that is really trying to push that boundary and take risks on new work and new formats and so they have like their opera at uh, Independence Hall they uh, mm -hmm. do the the screening of an opera on the lawn at Independence Hall but they also have a festival the O2 festival which I think is gosh you'd have to look it up online but it's their their opera festival where they do more experimental newer works alongside some of the older stuff and you can see like a whole ton of opera in a week Sweet. and I think that's really awesome um, there are some Oh, this this summer in Philadelphia, and this is unusual, in June next month, Chorus America is having their national conference here at the convention center. Okay. So for a week in the third week of June, I think it is, the third or fourth week of June, uh, choirs from all over the country will be performing. I know the Mendelssohn Club is giving a big performance. The Crossing, which is mm -hmm. yeah. probably Philadelphia's uh, best known new music choir is uh, one of the featured choirs that will be around for Chorus America that summer. So that's exciting and that's happening too. Um, right now, currently, I my sound design is in a show that's running through May 26. Uh, this won't be out before then. Oh. Uh, <laughs> probably cut, not. Cut, just cut that. Okay. Uh, <laughs> um, yeah, go on to any more, any of your other plugs or uh, What else do I have coming up? Specifically, I mean, it's there. funny. I, um, most of my commissions coming up are outside of Philadelphia. Okay. And I have like all of these commissions coming down the pike now. Um, uh, I'm writing a work for the St. Louis Chamber Chorus that'll be out in September that's based on gravestone inscriptions at Gallipoli from mm. World War One. Um, oh. Yeah, so it's another sort of war story. I keep doing war pieces i don't know what that's about and uh it's almost like our society has a fascination with it <laughs> i know good or bad yeah um next year i have some really exciting projects that i have my fingers crossed will come into fruition um I'm no, I won't mention the names of the people i'm working with because it's not a hundred percent sure that yeah. funding is coming down yet but oh i'm really excited about this one um you heard of the union leader mother jones uh there's a there's a there's a news uh, outlet named after her, but she right. was a union leader in like the 20s and 30s. Okay. She, in the 1920s, led a protest march called the March of the Mill Children. So mm. Kensington, Kensington, the suburb of Kensington, or it's not really a suburb, neighborhood of Kensington in Philadelphia, was a mill district, a, a textile mill district. And prior to the 1940s, it was like a bunch of little kids getting their limbs chewed off in the oh, giant gosh. textile mills and dying in factories and working barefoot and in rags while they created textiles for rich people, right? Yep. That horrible period mm -hmm. of history that we forget kind of happened in America. and um, Not that long ago. Not that yeah. long ago. And Mother Jones was horrified by this. She was a union organizer. So she came to Philly and she organized a march of these children from Philadelphia, several hundred of them, 
to Teddy Roosevelt's summer home on Long Island. Oh, wow. To protest child labor and to insist upon child labor laws. The march was roundly attacked by the press and by conservative interests because they would say things like, the children don't know what they're talking about, these children are privileged and adults are using them and manipulating them to do this protest. Uh, the, you know, these, there's too much money tied up in child labor, we can't possibly dismantle this terrible, this industry, even if you don't agree with it. Almost exactly the same reaction as the children from Marjorie Stoneman Douglas faced when yeah. they marched on Washington to protest gun regulation or to ask for gun regulation yeah. mm -hmm. exactly the same uh, situation the march to teddy roosevelt's uh, home was considered a failure nothing changed and yet it generated a lot of publicity and a decade later pennsylvania was the first state in the union to pass child labor laws anti-child labor laws and within you know 20 years of the march it was the law of the land that you couldn't use children to you know, lose their limbs in textile mills. <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> so yeah, it's funny you can't measure the the reaction that the public has to something, right? Like, yeah. And you and can't know, yeah. And children marching for their lives because they are the ones whose lives are being threatened. I'm like, oh my god, it's the same story. It's exactly the same story, and it's a Philadelphian story. Yeah. But I'd never heard about mm. about it. It's not well known. Um, it's and so I was just like, oh my god, we forget our history, and so we repeat it, <laughs> of course. Totally. And the way to keep history in our mind is through art, actually. So, totally. are you hoping to convey that story with a choir piece or a theatrical uh, or yes. opera-ish? Or yes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, my my thought is that it's a. A, a piece for youth chorus with uh, a couple of adult singers, um, you know, a woman playing Mother Jones and probably a baritone who sings several evil roles. You know, the, <laughs> yeah. the bad guys who plays the factory owners <laughs> and the newspaper people and, you know, the general public and then Teddy Roosevelt. <laughs> <laughs> Not that Teddy Roosevelt was a terrible person all together but like you yeah, know, yeah. he was very sort of you know no we can't change anything there's so much money coming in <laughs> and you know yeah. these people are very rich and powerful so yeah so <laughs> look for that definitely in Sweet. 2020 slash 2021 I have um, really high hopes that I'm going to write this for a local organization. I'll leave it there. Very, yeah, that's very, yeah. Exciting. And uh, that about wraps it up. Thank you so much thank for you. Thank you. inviting us into your uh, home and I wish letting you could us come break over. your stuff. Oh my God, no. I wish you could come over and play and break my stuff every day, honestly. Well, we can't, but, I know. but we'll come back and do an episode with Matt sometime. Yes! <laughs> that's the plan. Yeah, that would be great because uh and then we can get super electronic-y and spend five hours plugging people yeah. <laughs> <laughs> into various recorders that may or may not work sounds like a plan <laughs> yay All thank right. you thanks last up today we've got another relaxing tonal improvisation that we did this one features lots more stylophone and i swear we're not trying to sell these to you but if you did happen to fall in love with the sound this episode you can purchase one on amazon for 34.95 
Dave played the stylophone beatbox to provide us the groove, and Melissa played the melody on the original stylophone synth, which is set up more like a keyboard, but again is played with a stylus. And I played ukulele, and Melissa also added some vocals in at the end. so much for listening to Sean and Dave Make Music. If you like our show and you have an extra five minutes to spare today, please, please, please head over to Apple Podcasts and leave us a rating and a review. Please also continue to spread the word to your friends and colleagues if you think they might be interested in what we do. And if you have any questions or comments or would like to submit a prompt for us to improvise off of, please send us an email at seanandavemakemusic at gmail.com. You can also find us on Facebook and Instagram. Just search Sean and Dave Make Music, write out the word and instead of the ampersand like our logo and you'll find us. And don't forget to look up Melissa's other projects at melissadunphy.com. Her music can also be found on Spotify, iTunes, YouTube, and elsewhere on the internet. And don't forget to check out The Bog House wherever you get your podcasts. We'll be back next month with more music and another fantastic guest. See you then. (laughs) 